If you have your Bibles, open them please to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Oh my goodness, what a time it is when the church and the family and the individual and the entire world have faced this incredible day uh, of the pandemic. Did you ever think that in a matter of literally 24 or 48 hours, every single sports team in all the world would stop playing? Did, did you ever think that could happen? Did you ever think that you could see on television New York, London, Los Angeles, Paris, Rome, Hong Kong, all the cities of the world with empty streets in the middle of the day. Empty streets in the middle of the day. Who in the world ever thought such things could happen? And we have been so impressed in these last few months with limitations, haven't we? What we can't do. And that's what stares us in the face, and that's what leaps out, and that's what has our attention. That's what creates this enormous sense of frustration, is what we can't do. Well, there was a day when God had a problem. I mean, God had a real and very significant problem. Complex and extremely important. God had a problem. So we know that the life and ministry of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, all happened in the land we call Israel. We know that, don't we? It's a very small country. It was then, it, it is now. And I doubt if Jesus ever traveled more than 70 miles in terms of north and south or east and west in his whole life. It was a tiny place in a big world. And it wasn't just a tiny place in a big world. I mean, Times Square is a tiny place in a big city. But it's known all over the world. <laughs> that was not Israel. Okay, this was a backwater part of the Roman Empire. Not every place can have the significance and importance of Prattville, Alabama. Uh, and, and Israel just didn't have that. I mean, they, they, were, they were a small place in a big world. So everything that happened in the life of Jesus, his perfect sinless life, his incredible teachings, his sacrificial death for our sins on the cross, and his resurrection happened far away from the attention of the world, far away from the centers of population, far away from political power, and political influence. So do you see the problem that God has? All that was necessary for our salvation has now happened. And that gift of the forgiveness of sin and the transformation of life is now available to anyone who will call upon the name of Jesus. But how are they going to know that? 
How do you get what happened over here in this little, small, backwater country of Israel known all over the world? No radio, no television, no newspapers, hardly any books, <gasps> no social media. How in the world can you make that known? The people who are following Christ are not prominent people. They're not wealthy people for the most part. They are more middle class and poor people. How in the world do you get the gospel everywhere with all those limitations? How can it happen? Do, do you understand what I'm talking about? I mean, God had a problem. It was a serious and significant problem without any kind of obvious solution. How in the world was God going to get Jesus to everyone? Now, rest assured, whenever God has a problem, he always finds an elegant solution. Whenever God has a problem, he always finds an elegant solution. And the essence of elegance is simplicity. And God found an elegant, simple solution to his problem. And here it is. I'm going to share it with you. I have labored long and hard. I have thought carefully. I have worked everything out. And I have got God's incredible solution to this very complicated, very real problem. I have got it all condensed down into one word. And I'm going to give you the word. Here it is. God had a problem. How to get the message of Jesus to every person on the planet from a place in the middle of nowhere, so to speak, without any kinds of mass media, without any kinds of easy transportation, without wealth, without money, without any billboards. How did God do it? Here it is. One word. You ready for it? God's solution to this important and complicated problem is you. God's solution is you. And by you, I mean all of us. And, and by all of us, I mean each of us. God's solution was what he was able to do in the life of each believer. Now, did God's solution work? Let me just do a little survey here. How many of you came to a saving faith in Christ when you were walking around the shores of the Sea of Galilee and a Christian fisherman stopped you and shared the gospel with you. Anybody here? Okay, no. All right, how about this? How many of you came to a safe faith in Christ when you were having coffee at a little coffee shop in Jerusalem and a Christian sat at the table next to you, leaned over, told you about Jesus, and you were saved in Jerusalem? How many of you? Would you just raise your hand? None of you? So the gospel got all the way 
from Jerusalem all the way across Israel, up and across Asia Minor, all the way across Europe, all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, all the way across the United States until it got to you. How? Very simply, the gospel traveled from life to 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 life, etc., until it found you in Prattville or wherever it found you. That's literally how it happened. How in the world? Because that's, that's what happened. The gospel has traveled to every continent on the earth. The gospel has transformed lives literally all over the world from every race and every tribe. How has that happened? The gospel was able to travel to the ends of the earth because the gospel traveled from life to life. So let me just call your attention to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount is what we call that. It is the longest sermon that Jesus preached. Takes up three chapters in the Bible. I have great news for you today. Wonderful news. I'm not going to preach on the whole Sermon on the Mount. So just relax, okay? Just, just be calm. I just want us to look briefly at the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Why don't we stand in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning as we look at this passage together. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain and he sat down, and his disciples gathered around him. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely for my name's sake. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Your reward will be great in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither does anybody light a candle in order to put it under a basket. 
but rather to put it on a lampstand so that all may see its light. Let your light shine that men may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together with your word. Speak through your word to your servants today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One attitude, one determination, one choice can make all the difference in the world in the impact, influence, and power of a life. And that is, are you going to live your life intentionally like the life of Jesus? Or are you not? For everyone that Jesus calls to him, everyone that he transforms into a child of God, everyone that he adopts into his kingdom, Jesus has a very simple expectation. Be like me. And that really is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. That, that, that's what the name meant. It was a nickname. It was actually uh, a nickname that was designed to scorn and to ridicule. It's a name that they used for those who followed Christ in the early church's world. They began by calling them people of the way. That was the first thing they were called. Why? Because these people who followed Christ, they had a specific way that they lived. They were living on an agenda. And so those who knew them, encountered them, they were calling them people of the way. But by the time they got to Antioch, in order to make fun of them, to say, boy, these people are weird, they called them something different. They called them Christians, little Christs. They were trying to be like Jesus. For you see, they did this very intentionally because this was God's plan on how to spread the gospel. Again, no radio, no television, no newspapers, no books, no publications, no billboards, no giant stadiums where they could fill an evangelist like Billy Graham could preach the gospel and explain it. None of these things were there. All they had was the life they were living, and that's all God needed to spread the gospel from person to person to person. God's plan to spread the gospel has always been you me, each of us, and all of us intentionally seeking to live like Jesus. Well, what makes that plan work? Why did God even think that this could spread the gospel? Because after all, who am I? Who are you? We are all relative to the affairs of the world, very insignificant people, all of us, including me. No one ever calls me and asks my opinion on anything, okay? People, I don't get calls and saying, what do you think is going to happen in the future? People don't call me and ask me that. They don't ask me, who do you think is going to win the election? I'm never interviewed by the New York Times, the Washington Post. They don't talk with me. And they probably don't talk with you either. We are insignificant people in the affairs of the world. Yet there is something that each of us has that is enormously powerful. It is a circle of family and friends. 
And I don't care who you are. I don't care what you do. I don't care what your life is like. You have a circle of family and friends. You may be a mother consumed in the raising of children and the running of a household. You may be a father who is busy with work. You may be a parent who is doing both of those things. You may be a single parent and all you want to do is survive one more day. You may be very wealthy. You may be on the edge of poverty. You may be living on a fixed income. You may be able to get anything you want in the world because money is not something you, you don't even bother balancing your checkbook because you can't spend it all. You may be very highly educated. You may have not made it through high school. You may be very fluent in multiple languages. You may speak Bubba E's perfectly, and that's about it. That's your only language. It really doesn't matter who you are. You have a circle of family and friends. They are people who know you. They are people that you interact with, and they are people that you are around. Yeah, you, you know who family are, and you know the people that you work with or go to school with. Uh, you also know that you probably go to the same grocery store most of the time to get your groceries. You know, if it's Walmart or something, you go to the same grocery store and get your groceries most of the time. You know that you eat at similar places. You go back to the same place more than one time if it's any good at all. You know you have a dry cleaner. Whenever you need dry cleaning, you go to that dry cleaner, and that's the one that you go to. You don't just drive down the street and look for a new one every time you need dry cleaning done. You see, we all develop this circle of family and friends and people that we interact with, every single one of us. And research has been done over why people join a church. And what they have found out that most of the time when anybody joins a church, when anybody makes a public profession of faith, or even if they join by letter, most of the time they join a church in which they already have a family or a friend who is a member of that church. The most likely people to become a part of this church and the people in the future are those who are in your circle of family and friends, those people that you interact with, co-workers, fellow fishers or golfers or football fans or whatever it may be. You have a world at which you are the center and everybody around it knows you. And they watch you, and they live with you, and they don't watch every day minutely to see every little thing that you do, but they can't help but notice you. They can't help but notice how you react. Talk with anybody who serves the public and say, okay, tell me this guy coming in the door right now, what's he like? Oh, he gets mad all the time. He's always down. Everything's horrible. Tell me about that guy coming in the door. Always happy. I mean, he's going to come in. The first thing he's going to say is, Top of the morning to you. How are you today? He says that every single time he comes in. People notice things like that. You go to the same place and they know what you what coffee you're going to drink. Rhonda got a big kick with, I think she went with me one time. When I was a doctoral student, there was a Walgreens that had a lunch counter in a mall. And I would go to that Walgreens before the mall opened early in the morning to study for my oral exams. And I would get there about 8.30 in the morning, and the mall was closed, but that Walgreens lunch counter was open to serve breakfast. And I would study there for about an hour or so, then I would walk around the mall, then I would go home to study for my oral exams. And it got to where when I walked in the door, by the time I got to the booth where I always sat, my coffee and my biscuit was there because that's what I got every morning, my coffee and my biscuit. And those waitresses knew that. I never had to say a word. They knew that. Even now, there's a place to go, and Rhonda's been with me there, a place in New Orleans that does po'boys and other things. 
and I walk in the door of that restaurant, and when I sit down, the waitress will say two words. The usual, and I'll nod my head, and that's it. Because they know, observe how I live and what I do. When you are seeking to embody Jesus in that life, you can't help but make him known. Now, look at the Beatitudes. Powerful, wonderful words. Did you notice what the Beatitudes do? They turn life upside down. Blessed are the poor. Now, those words don't normally go together. If you're poor, you're struggling. If you're poor, you're very concerned about what the future holds. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me call your attention to, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Do you know you can't give mercy to anybody who hasn't done anything to you? You can only give mercy to people who have hurt you, offended you, or done you wrong. You can't give mercy to your favorite person in the world. I can't give mercy to my wife, Rhonda, because she is so much a part of me and I love her so deeply, I can't give her mercy. She never hurts me. You can only give mercy to people who have wronged you. And here's this command. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. I doubt if you remember, recall, or recognize the name of Brant Jean, 18-year-old, African-American young man. I doubt if you know his name. I doubt if you have any recollection of him. Although I wouldn't be surprised if as I tell you what he did, you will remember him. Brant Jean had an older brother, 26 years old, living in an apartment. And late one night, an off-duty policeman came in that apartment and shot and killed his brother. It was the wrong apartment. She thought it was her apartment. She got mixed up. She went to the wrong apartment, saw somebody in it, and she shot, shot and killed him, thinking he was an intruder in her apartment. She was wrong. She killed an innocent man. She was brought to trial. And in that Dallas courtroom, the trial was over. He was convicted of that wrongful. She was convicted of, it was a female police officer. She was convicted of that wrongful death. It's now not uncommon in American courtrooms whenever there has been something like a murder or a death to let the victims say something to the convicted offender before the sentence is passed down. And this 18-year-old African-American young man stood up, it was his turn to say something to this now convicted killer of his brother. And he looked at the judge and he said, can I give her a hug? Stunned the courtroom. And the judge was a little befuddled and said, well, okay. 
and he walked over and he put his arms around her and he hugged this police officer who shot and killed his brother in a wrongful death. And he said, I'm not going to say I hope you spend the rest of your life rotting in jail. I forgive you. And he hugged her again and sat down. What, you remember? You weren't in the courtroom, were you? You saw that on the news. You saw that on the news because it was everywhere on the news because it was so unusual. It was so distinctive. It isn't what people do. And in being interviewed, as you might well know how many interviews he did afterwards, the young man said, that's what Jesus expects us to do. Wow. That's an ancient Hebrew word. Wow. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And when you are merciful, you can't be anonymous. When you are merciful, you can't be overlooked. And you go through each of these beatitudes, if I had time, I'd take it everywhere, and you see how they turn life upside down. That isn't the way people behave in the normal world. But it is the way that Jesus wants us to behave. And when we behave like that, people know something is different. Why are you behaving like that? Why would you do that? Why would you think that? Why would you act like that? Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Now, what does salt do? It flavors everything it comes in contact with. Have you ever had mashed potatoes cooked without salt? <laughs> you, you, you don't ever want to do that. Horrible. It flavors everything that it touches. And you and I are called to be salt that is flavoring in a positive, delicious way everybody with whom we interact. So they are blessed. They are touched. They are affected by our interactions with them. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. First time I ever went to Israel, we were doing a boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. If you ever go to Israel, that's something you have to do. We're doing a boat ride. We got everybody on the boat and we pulled away from the dock and I happened to be seated next to the guide on the front row of the boat. That's just the way it worked out. And as we made our way across the Sea of Galilee, person after person would come to the guide and say, excuse me, that village that's on the top of that hill over there, is that Nazareth? Please sit down. We'll talk about that in a minute. Somebody else would come and say, excuse me, is that village on the top of that hill, is that, is that Bethlehem? Please sit down. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And everybody wanted to know the name of that village. Finally, we got to the center of the Sea of Galilee, stopped the boat, and the guide stood up, and he began giving us the orientation of everything we could see around the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Finally, he said, many of you came to me and asked the name of that village on the top of that hill over there. No, it is not Bethlehem. No, it is not Nazareth. I could tell you the name, but it wouldn't mean a thing to you. But I'll tell you this about that village. It's been there for 2,000 years. And I will remind you what Jesus said. Right over there is where he did the Sermon on the Mount as best we know. 
And if you look from there to there, remember his words. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And as you see, he was right. My family took our very first family vacation, and it was a doozy. I was about nine or ten years old, and we drove from Beaumont, Texas, on the Gulf Coast of Texas, to Yellowstone National Park and back in our Dodge station wagon. It was a trip. I had four sisters and no brothers. Even our dog was a girl. I had no chance at all. It was just, it was horrible. I mean, all the way up and all the way back. Well, we made many stops along the way, and one of them was Carlsbad, New Mexico, to see the famous Carlsbad Caverns. And we got there in the late afternoon, checked at our hotel, and rushed out to the caverns and got there as the sun was beginning to set, just in time to see all those thousands and thousands of bats come pouring out of Carlsbad Caverns. Literally covered the whole sky. Bats, bats everywhere. It really creeped my sisters out, which I thought was wonderful. And I mean, it was really an amazing sight. So we go back the next day in the morning to do a tour of the caverns. And we get our tickets and they assign us to a group and a guide meets us at the appointed place and we start going down, 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 down into the caverns. And the further we get down, it's like they're beautiful, incredibly uh, magnificent caverns with all sorts of rock formations and the guide's explaining various things that we're seeing. And finally, he turns us off of the main path into a side cave. And in that cave, there are benches lined up in a row. And he tells all of us to sit down on the benches for a minute. So we all sit down and he tells us a bit more about the history, how the caverns were discovered and all of that. And then he said, now, I want to warn you in advance. I'm about to do something very scary. And it, it's going to be scary, but it's okay. And I'm telling you in advance so you can prepare. In just a moment, I'm going to count to three and I'm going to turn off the lights and you are going to experience total darkness. You will not be able to see anyone else in the cave. You will not be able to see your hand in front of your face. I'm going to count to three and I'm going to turn off the lights, but it's okay. You're sitting down. You don't need to move. It's all right. And then you're going to hear me. You won't see me, but you will hear me count to three again. And the second time when I get to three, I'm going to turn the lights back on. I want you to experience total darkness. So we're all sitting there. One, two, three. He turned the lights out. Oh, my word. I thought I knew what a dark room looked like. There was absolutely no light at all. You could not see anybody. You could hear people breathing, but you couldn't see anybody. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was a bit scary. And then came the voice out of the darkness. One, two, three. He didn't turn the lights on. Instead, he flicked a cigarette lighter. And that little flame from that cigarette lighter came on and changed everything. No, it wasn't as bright as the electrical light system 
that had been on before. But when he flicked on that cigarette lighter, you could see the other people in the room. You could see your hands in front of your face. Just that little light changed everything. Jesus said, you, you don't light a candle to put it under a basket. You light a candle to put it on a lampstand so everyone can see. And then he said, let your light shine. Now, friends, Romans and countrymen, lend me your ears. I want to bury an idea and not praise it. This is what will determine the future of this church. The pastor who occupies this pulpit always has, in the past of the church, and always will in its future, occupy a very important and necessary place in the life of the church. He will teach you the Bible. He will offer his wisdom and guidance and counsel that he learns from the Lord. And the pastor will play a very important role, but he will not determine the future of the church. The future of the church will be determined by you, by each of us and all of us. Because God's strategy to get the gospel to everyone is still the same elegant strategy. If each of us is living intentionally to embody the gospel, and the Sermon on the Mount, all three chapters, it's about how to live. That's what it's about. How to live. Because if you are living like Jesus, you will be noticed and you will have an opportunity to tell people what Jesus means to you. Did you notice I left out one part of one verse in this little section? You are the salt of the earth. I said that. You are the light of the world. I said that. You're to be on a lampstand, not under a bushel. I said that. Let your light shine. I said that. Did you notice what I left out? If the salt loses its saltiness, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. Your life when you come to Christ is gripped by God and nothing can take you out of His hand. When you are born again, and that's the language Jesus used, when you are born again as a child of God, you can't be unborn. If you have a son or a daughter and they do horrible things, they are still your son, your daughter, and always will be. And so, you can't lose your salvation. But you can become useless. And this is what Jesus said. 
you are the salt of the earth, intended to flavor everything you touch, everything you interact with. But if the salt loses its saltiness, it becomes useless. So here is the fact that we face. The future of our church will be determined by whether or not we intentionally seek to live like Jesus. If we seek to live like him, we will affect this community and people in the community. We, we can't help but be, we don't have to have a big advertising campaign. We don't have to have a huge budget. We don't have to put our pastor on television every Sunday. We, we can't help but be noticed even if people try to ignore us because when you live like this, it's so odd. It's so different. It, it, it's so mysterious. Why? How? But if we fail in that task, we become useless to God's purpose. So my question is simply this, and, I, and I, uh, my question is simply this. What label has God put on your life so far? Useful or useless? How does God judge you? He's not looking at your bank account. He's not looking by the hours that you've spent in this wonderful facility. He's not looking at what people think of you in terms of your importance to the community. He's looking at you in terms of his purpose. Are you seeking to live like Jesus? Would he describe you as useful or useless? Because right now today, if you have been living a life that has been useless to the spread of the gospel, you can change that. You can change that and make that commitment. I'm going to wake up every day and I'm going to say, Lord, help me to look like Jesus today. I'm going to seek to live today like Jesus would live. You can change how God views your life today. But the day will come when you step into eternity or Jesus comes back. And you're going to have a label that you'll carry the rest of eternity. Yeah. You'll go to heaven if you belong to Jesus. But will your name tag say useful? Or will your name tag say useless? And you go through all eternity knowing you could have made a difference but you chose not to. I love Baptist church sanctuaries. I've been in more of them than you can possibly imagine. Big, beautiful, impressive ones. Wow, I mean, you just, wow, I can't believe it. Small, humble ones that, that, that make this seem like a mega church. Under a tree, this is often the case, churches in the bush. I've been in all sorts of Baptist sanctuaries. But when Baptists build a sanctuary, one of the things you'll always find what the architects will call the platform. It goes across the front from one to six steps. 
six islands, the big ones. This one has two. You'll see that platform that goes all the way across the front. You see, it's a Baptist habit. Not call that the platform. You know what that is? That's the altar. That, that's, that's the altar. They're all built around this. You see, the focal point of the sanctuary, Lord's Supper table, Jesus died. The pulpit where that death of Jesus and his resurrection is And the baptistry where new Christians are baptized into the family of God. And they're all in alignment. And around the centrality of that, and this is true all over the world in Baptist churches, the altar. A place where Christians can come and pray. You know, we're not perfect. And we make mistakes along the way. Sometimes we take a wrong turn. Sometimes we just forget. We just forget. Sometimes we make a bad choice. And as I've spent my life growing up in Baptist churches, First Baptist Church, Beaumont, Texas, was my home church. When we would have the invitation, sometimes people would come to this and they would say, I want to give my life to Jesus. And they would pray and become a Christian. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you can do that and you can be born again and you will forever be in the grip of God. You will never be the same person. Sometimes people would come and say, I want to become a member of this church. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a Baptist. I live in this community. I don't have a church home. I want to become a member of this church. And this is where they come to say, I want to join you and be a part of this fellowship. Oh, but as I was growing up, it was not unusual. Nearly every worship service. One, two, three people would come to this altar. Sometimes they would talk and pray with the preacher. Often they wouldn't even do that. They would come here. God had some business he wanted to do with their soul. And this is where they did it. And you know what was communicated to every one of us in the congregation? We're all in process. We're not perfect. And when somebody came and helped us after a sermon weeping. We didn't know why. But we knew, okay, they had some business to do with God. And it was a reminder to me to ask God, am I clean? Am I right? And so that tradition continues. Just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. The pastor will be here at the front to receive those of you who want to talk with him, give your life to Christ, become a member of his church, if you want him to pray with you. You may simply want to come to the altar and say, Lord, I have not been useful. I've been useless for the spread of the gospel today. 
I want to make the first commitment. Not simply to be a Christian, but to be a useful Christian. Let's all stand together for a prayer, and then we'll have our invitation. Father, thank you for all that is ours in Jesus. Thank you for what you have done for us and for your great patience with us. And it's incredible to me that the Lord God of all the universe, with all power, every bit of power there is to have, has chosen to make each of us the center of the strategy to change the world. One life at a time, making a difference, not on the whole world, but just on my world, the people around me. But when each of us does that, the gospel gets everywhere. So, Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. If that flame is burning brightly, if it's not under a basket, I pray that you would renew our passion to live for Jesus every day. If that candle has been put under a basket of neglect or a basket of sin or a basket of distraction, would you speak to us this day and call us to again present ourselves as your servants to be useful to spread this gospel. Speak to our hearts, Father, and hear every prayer offered from your children in this time. In the precious and strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask our pianist to simply pray. Let's just do a quiet invitation today. The altar is open. The pastor is here. He'll tell us when it's time to close. You come now. Come forward.